Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So we find ourselves this morning in another parable from the mouth of Jesus. We've heard several of them as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. But this is the first of a couple of parables that you'll see next week will be in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So this is the first in a couple of parables in this specific section that we have this travel section that we've been in for a few weeks here. And the parable is clearly tied to the section before it because we see that the, in the end of verse 8, Jesus speaking about, I tell you, uh, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And he's speaking about still this parable is in some sense related to the content from last week in the reality of this coming kingdom, that Christ is going to return, that he is going to bring his kingdom. And remember last week he said it's going to be as visible as lightning that flashes and fills up the sky. You will not be able to miss the coming king and his coming kingdom. In his first incarnation, Jesus was overlooked. He was despised. He was rejected. He was looked upon with scorn. And they crucified him. That was in his first incarnation, his first advent. But this second advent, the parousia, this second coming of Christ, will not be able to be avoided. And so this parable is related to that whole idea of the kingdom coming because we see at the end he's speaking of this return, that the Son of Man, will he, he is coming. He will, he will return. The question is, will he find faith on the earth? From that, we can tell that the parable is meant to teach us something about remaining faithful. But specifically, remaining faithful and and faith-filled in the moments when we are tempted to give up and to lose heart. Life is full of those moments. I mean, I shouldn't have to convince you of that. If you've been around much at all, you know that life is full of those moments. We live in a broken and fallen world. Things go wrong. Sometimes things that we think it's clear this is the way they should go end up not going that way. Happens all the time. And it is easy in this fallen and broken world to become very discouraged. 
to lose heart. It is easy to become disappointed. I wanted my life. I wanted things to go this certain way. Seems like this would have been a good uh, answer to this prayer. It seems like this would have been better if this thing had happened. And it doesn't. And it's easy to then become disappointed, to become discouraged, to, as Luke writes it, it's easy, and Jesus says, to lose heart. It's easy to become bitter and pessimistic. Those things are all easy to become, but the question we have to ask is, is it justifiable for a Christian to take up those attitudes? Is it justifiable for a Christian to take up those attitudes? Not is it possible. Certainly, these moments of discouragement and disappointment come upon us all. We're not talking about the, the occasional falling into those frames of mind or being disappointed or being discouraged or being sorrowful over a way things have turned out. But the question is, are, is it right for a Christian to make their home in disappointment, to make their home in discouragement? And the parable gives us an answer to that question. It uses contrast. This is a different type of parable. Many parables use comparison. And they'll say, the kingdom of heaven is like. And it'll give you a positive example. And then how, how the kingdom of heaven, this thing, is like that. But this is, uses contrast. This parable speaks of a, of, a, of a bad thing. And then says, how much better is God? And we've seen this before. You may remember the... Um, Parable or Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 7, and he says, If you being wicked, the speaking to fathers, if you being wicked give good to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And it uses a contrast by saying, You who are wicked, those who are evil, those who are fallen, those who are not pure and righteous and holy, if we as earthly fathers and parents know to give good to our children, and we're not pure and holy and blameless, well, how much more would God, who is holy and perfect and righteous, give good gifts to His children? He uses a contrast of, look how this bad thing does good. How much more so would God, who is good, give good? And this is the way He uses this contrast here speaking of this judge. The point is that if those who are far more wicked than God know to do good... We should have far greater confidence that God, who is pure, righteous, and holy, will do good. In this parable, the judge does not fear God and does not respect man. And it's not even just like something that's known about him. He even confesses it himself later in the parable. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, he owns this reality that he doesn't care about God's justice. He doesn't care about his neighbor. He's this unjust judge. He has no concern for his neighbor's well-being and no ideas that they deserve justice. He is a wicked judge. He has no ear for his people's complaint. He doesn't care. But what do we see? That because this widow keeps coming to the judge, expressing her concern, he grants her justice just so he'll leave her alone. And you can, I mean, we all understand how that parable works. You've had those moments. Uh, 
you're in the store. I mean, I, I'll confess, I have a weakness. If my, uh, I'm glad Joel's not here to hear me say this because sometimes a kid shows up and they nag you so much that you're just fine. Like, fine, I'll buy you the piece of candy. Will you be quiet? And you're fine. It just if you'll and the that and that's we all understand what the judge is thinking, right? If you'll just be quiet, just to get rid of this annoyance, I'll just give you what you want so that you will leave me alone. That's what this judge is feeling. What does this teach us, though? Because you can, it's easy to, to mistake, I think, what this parable is actually teaching us. What does this tell us about our relationship to God and to prayer? The point of the parable is not that you must haggle God to get your prayers answered. That's using the parable as a comparison, saying, see, she had to haggle We have to haggle. That's not this kind of a parable. It's a parable of contrast. The point of the parable is is not that you must haggle God to get your prayers answered. It's actually the exact opposite of what the parable is teaching. The answered prayer, the giving of justice, is founded upon the greater character of our judge. The greater character of our God and his greater care for those who are his. If you conclude that the message of this parable is that, uh, that we would take up these unnecessary burdens and responsibilities for prayer is to miss the whole point, though many people think this way. I was on my mail route. I have certain people that just I kind of see on a regular basis, and I have one religious individual who I saw just yesterday on the mail route or a couple of days ago. And they'd had a prayer, had a, a certain thing. They wanted to go a certain way. I'll be as generic as I can be. And they got to know the way that they wanted the circumstance to turn out didn't turn out that way. Um, they did not get what they wanted. And they concluded, were saying to me, that they just should have fasted and prayed more. And... That's not the point of the parable of the persistent widow. If they had just spent, they were convinced, if they just spent more time fasting and praying, that they would have got a yes answer. But that is a wicked conclusion that will lead to disappointment, discouragement, and possibly unbelief. When it comes to prayer, we have to admit That the issues that we face and the issues that we desire to turn out a certain way, we definitely know what we want them to turn out to be, but we do not always know what they need to be. There, There has to be a confession at some level on our part as creation that we do not always know what is best. We are finite. We do not see the whole scope of history in a moment. We see all that we live. And when we think about our 70, 80, 90 years, they are a flash in the pan compared to God's view of what he's doing in history for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And so we have to, when we come to prayer, we have to confess, we do not know. We know what we want, but we do not necessarily know what we need. If we insist that prayer must be answered the way we want it to be, Prayer isn't really our communication with God and our communion with Him. Prayer is more like our butler service hotline that we call up from room service and say, well, hey, you know, I really, this needs to get done. Is that what prayer is? Is prayer our our walkie-talkie to the butler to let him know? That makes us God and Him the butler. That is not what prayer is about. He is not our divine butler who's being told to serve us 
who are truly God. But how then, if, if that's the reality, how does this parable produce in us the ability to not lose heart, right? Verse 1, he told the parable to the effect they ought to always pray and not lose heart. If we know that the answers to our prayers may be a no, how are we to not lose heart? Isn't that the summary that Jesus gives, right? We're not going to lose heart. He tells them not to lose heart, to keep on praying. So what can he be talking about? Paul himself doesn't always get a positive answer to his prayers. If you, if you have some of your Bible out, you can flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a very popular, famous passage, but Paul himself has this thorn in his side. He's got this issue. We don't know if it's a physical illness, if it's possibly a demonic uh, kind of oppression, or what's going on, or if it's just if it's actual, might be other people uh, around him that are persecuting him. We don't really know what this thorn in the side is. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, what he's known of God, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. conceited. Verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But... So this, there's, there's his request. He wants the thorn to be gone. Verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Does Paul not know the parable of the persistent widow? What's he doing? I mean, he's got this thorn... He wants the judge to act a certain way. Does Paul not know? You just go and haggle and haggle and haggle and haggle God endlessly, and then you get what you want. No, Paul knows the parable of the persistent widow. He knows these things are going. Luke is, is the writer under Paul. Luke is the accompaniment of Paul. He certainly knows Paul. Paul knows Luke. He knows this story, this parable of the persistent widow. So then, what is up? Paul knows this parable, but the point was... Not that he get the result that he wanted, but that he makes his request knowing God hears your concerns, God cares for the concerns, and God will do what is right. Paul prays, not because he's convinced God must do what he wants him to do. Paul prays and makes this request for the relief of the thorn because he knows, first and foremost, God is a God who hears, God is a God who cares, And God is a God who will do what is ultimately and finally right. This judge who doesn't care, who wants this unjust judge of the parable, doesn't care, doesn't want to do what's right. Even he eventually does hear. Even he eventually is provoked to care, even for his own benefit. And even he does what is right. How much more so will our Father in heaven hear the requests of his people? care about their concerns, and ultimately do what is right. For the Christian, prayer is the action of us not losing heart. What is our heart full of when we pray? The confidence that no matter how it plays out in this life, our God will work justice for those who are His. It's the clear conclusion of the parable. Lord said, 
hear what the unrighteous judge said. Verse 7, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course he will. If the unjust judge does so, of course God will. The day is coming when the reality of his kingdom will be hidden no longer. The Son of Man will be revealed and no one will be able to deny his authority and who he is. On that day, there will be justice. It's how this parable ties in with the passage before. This is the hope in every Christian's eyesight. What Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3, he says to set your mind on things above, not on things below. To put your eyes on, on in heaven where Christ is seated, where you are with him. And when he appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. We set our eyes upon Christ and in his final appearing. It's the call from Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says to forget what lies behind and set your eyes on things before you. It is to, the day, to look at the day that is coming to remember that justice for God's people will not be forgotten to remember that no matter how this life this temporal life your your wisp of a life your vapor of a life no matter how it turns out no matter what goes on in it the reality is that for all of God's people God's elect he will do justice we will get to the final day and we will confess I suffered no wrong We will see the full picture and we will rejoice at what God has done because he will work justice for those who are his. My favorite hymn, this is my father's world, one of my favorite hymns. The final stanza, this is my father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. And earth and heaven be made one. The day is coming when the king does return. And he will bring justice for all those who are here. What are his? What Christ is calling us to is a clear view of the character of our God. And seeing him for who he is, this just judge who hears your concerns, who cares about your concerns and will absolutely do what is right. When you see him for who he is, prayer is the natural response. Why would you not cry out? Why would you lose heart? Why would you not lift up your request to this God who you know hears you, who you know cares for you, and who you know will on that final day bring about justice for all those who are his? If you have a sovereign God who hears and cares for you, why would you, a powerless creature, not cry out to him and not lose heart that he will work for your good? The emphasis, even though it is the parable of the persistent widow, the emphasis is not on this continuous prayer, but the real reality of turning continually to prayer Because of the character of your judge. Because of the character of your just judge. At a basic level, the prayerless life is a faithless life. The one who never prays, the one who never turns to God, it is a clear indicator of a faithless life. You you do not consider that God even hears. 
You do not consider that God cares. You do not consider that God will absolutely do exactly what you need in the ultimate sense. And so therefore you do not pray. But if you would have a vision of who God is, working on behalf of His people, prayer is a natural response, is the outflowing of that hope in Him and what He will do. It is the outflowing of not losing heart. Knowing things have gone wrong. My answers to many of my prayers have been no. I've had many no's to my prayers. But it does not deny the reality that God hears your concerns, cares for them, and will do what is right. He is a far more just judge than this judge is. Romans chapter 8. I just want to finish with this little passage here. I don't go to Romans 8 much. I could go to it much more than I do. But this reveals to us the character of our God. And I think provokes us to praise and to prayer. Who is this God? He's the God who cares for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Speaking so clearly of what Christ did for us in the gospel, Jesus Christ laying down his life for sinners. Those of us, all of us here who did not deserve God's rescue, had sinned and rebelled against Him. What does He do? He sends Jesus down, lives the righteous life we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve, raises from the dead so that every one of us in this room this morning can rejoice in the reality that upon confessing ourselves as sinners, deserving of God's wrath, but looking to Christ and what He has done can be delivered from that wrath and reconciled to the judge so that this righteous judge who should look at us and condemn us, can now look at us and see justified, see righteous, not by our works, but by the works of Christ. This is what the judge has done. He has sent his son to bear our punishment. He has given him. And if he will do that, if God will give that, why would we think he wouldn't give us everything else that is for our best? If he would not stop or hesitate to sacrifice and to give up his son, who are we to think that he wouldn't work for our ultimate good? It's preposterous when you think about it. This unjust judge gives this lady what she wants. What about our glorious, loving, good, gracious, merciful, long-suffering judge who has sent his son to rescue us? Why would he not do what is best for us? Who is to condemn us? Who shall bring any charges, verse 33, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is right now at the right hand of God. Who who indeed is interceding for us. These are all the things God shall do for us. But now listen. goes on, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Hear the tension of that passage. Look what God has done for you. Peace for you, who can be against you? And then over here, persecutions, famines, sufferings, sorrows. 
nakedness, danger, sword, distress, tribulation. You feel the tension of these things? If God will give us, has not spared a son, but given us his son, how will he not give us all things? And yet still, life in this world experiences trouble and difficulty and sorrow. And our minds immediately jump to, if God gives us what has given a son, how will he not give us all that we want, is what we jump to. But the reality is, he will give us all that we need. Why didn't he just say, why did, why did he just say, We'll be given all things and then yet continue about all the difficulty we will suffer. We will be given all things because we have been given the king. We will be given all things because in Christ we have all things. In Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1, that the opening, beautiful opening there, Ephesians chapter 1. God who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In getting Christ, we have been given everything. How can he say, oh God will give them, do not spare his son, will also give them all things. He says that because they have been given Christ. He says, verse 37, No, in all of these things, in all these difficulties, the sorrows, the sufferings, the distresses, the persecutions, they will continue. But in all of these things, we are far more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All who are His now can know that those strong arms that save do not lose any along the way. Those strong arms that have Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. Isaiah 43, 1. Those strong arms that have redeemed you, that have caught you, that have captured you, that has worked repentance and faith in your life, those strong arms that have caught you, they don't lose any. Those arms do not lose any. They may have their moments of suffering. They may have real struggle and deep grief in this momentary life. But there forever will be one of the fullness of of joy. He does not lose those who are his. The parable of the persistent widow, the reason why we do not lose heart and continue in prayer is because of that reality. Will the judge of the, all the earth not do what is right? He will. Do not come to communion this morning not knowing God like this. Do you think he can't hear you? He can. He does. He hears you. Do you think he doesn't care? The unjust judge cared. Far more does God in heaven care for your concerns. Look at the son who gave his life for you. Do you not think he will do what is right? Jesus staked his life on it. He died and rose from the grave for it. He will do what is right. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us in this truth from your word. The hope that is held out to us. The day is coming. All creation is groaning and longing for the redemption. And Father, we too groan and long for the redemption. But God, help us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit. That we would be those who do not grieve as those who have no hope. But who have hope. 
as we suffer, as we struggle, as we sorrow, God plant in our hearts this firm hope. One day, the king will return. Justice will be done. And none of the elect, none of those who are yours, will be sorrowful on that day. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.